in relationship to sin, count yourself or mark yourself, remind yourself, regard yourself, reckon yourself, consider that you're dead. And in relationship with God, count yourself, mark yourself, regard yourself as alive. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's open our Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're continuing our exposition of the book of Romans. Been a, an amazing study, and today we come to such a powerful passage. But Romans chapter 6, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, And alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. Well, this morning as we open up this incredible text, uh, as we open up this sermon, I want to begin with, a, with actually a tough question. So I'm going to put it on the screen for you this morning, a question for you to figure out and answer. What is greater than God, more evil than the devil? The poor have it, the rich need it, and if you eat it, you'll die. What is the answer to that riddle? Anybody know? That's right. The answer is Nothing. Nothing's greater than God. The poor have nothing, the rich need nothing. If you eat nothing, you will die. Now, as we open up this sixth chapter of the book of Romans, there is likewise a maybe an obvious question or a rhetorical riddle question that Paul is going to tackle, which almost seems like a riddle. It's a rhetorical question. And remember, just to recap, as we've been studying the book of Romans, Paul is writing this missions fundraising letter where he explains the gospel that he's been preaching to the church in Rome. And in chapter 5, what we just studied is that he's identified that we as Christians have been bestowed super abundant grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. 
And he is anticipating in that teaching that there are and there will, there have been, those who are sitting there going, so what you mean by grace is, if I sin more, I get more grace. And Paul anticipates this objection by asking the question, well, what shall we say then? What should our response be, knowing that we are now no longer in Adam, but we are now in Christ, sin abounded, but grace abounded more? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And the obvious answer to that question is by no means. That's the obvious, you would think, the obvious answer to that question. Here's the problem. It hasn't been that obvious. You see, Christians throughout the centuries have not come to the obvious conclusion that Paul did. In fact, not all Christians have agreed with Paul. They've said, well, if sin abounds, then more I sin, the more I get God's grace. In fact, this happened with the Russian monk known as Gregory Rasputin. He was of the Romanov family. And in the last years of their power, he, as a monk, was teaching that those who sin the most need the most forgiveness. So a sinner who continues to sin with no restraint will enjoy more of God's grace uh, when they repent than just the ordinary sinner. Now, as expected, this person, Rasputin, lived in notorious sin, and he taught everyone this is the path to salvation. I mean, wouldn't you follow a guy that looks like that? Chris, do we have a better picture of him? No, no, we don't. Okay, we can just take those down. Thank you. Now, that line of thinking may sound ridiculous, but is this not a question that many of us have had? In fact, John Stott asks it this way. Have we never caught ourselves making light of our failures on the ground that God will excuse and forgive them? And one poet said it this way. I like to commit crimes. God likes to forgive crimes. So really, the world is admirably arranged. Does that sound familiar? That sort of mindset where you say, well, I know I'm going into this. I'm just going to 1 John 1, 9 it. I'm going to confess my sins knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive my sins. So I'm going to get grace on the backside of this sin. So I'm just, it's going to be fine. I'm going to go for it. What shall we say then? So should we sin more that grace may abound more? And the obvious answer to that is by no means. So last week we saw how uh, Paul is expounding on this reality that all people are born in Adam. Those of us who are born again in Christ have received the superabundant grace and righteousness. And though sin reigned in death because of Christ, the last Adam, grace now reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life. Now, up until this point, like kind of midsection Romans 5, beginning of Romans 6, Paul has been speaking about justification and how we've been set free from the penalty of sin. But now, starting in chapter, end of chapter 5, beginning of 6, into 7, 8, Paul is now going to be speaking about sanctification and being set free, not from the penalty of sin necessarily, but the power of sin. So church, God's grace not only brings forgiveness for sin, it also brings freedom from sin. You and I have been declared righteous, but we've also been delivered for righteousness. One person noted this. They said on the screen, there's a great difference between realizing, yes, on that cross, he was crucified for me, and on that cross, I am crucified with him. The one aspect brings us deliverance from sin's condemnation, the other from sin's power. So in, in this week's sermon, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, and then in next week, as we look at chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, and then chapter 7, uh, in two weeks, 
we are going to see three images. If you're taking note, I want you to jot these down. Today, we're going to see baptism, this imagery of baptism, being baptized into and identifying with Christ. Uh, Next week, we're going to see slavery, the imagery of slavery, and how Christ has truly set us free. And then in two weeks on Father's Day, appropriately, we'll we'll, uh, speak on marriage for the men. Uh, And not only that, but marriage in the context of sin, deliverance, and sanctification. See, each one of these images on the screen demonstrate by Paul a status change which has taken place that cuts you off from the influence of a former relationship. And so that's what we're going to see in chapters 6 and 7. And in today's text, we're going to see what one person pointed out. They, they said, if there's an inconsistency between your baptism and sin, it's the sin that must die, not the baptism. And so in our text this morning, if you're taking note, we're going to see two big things, two big ideas. Uh, We're going to see in verses 1 through 10 what we know, and then in verses 11 through 14, we typically, if you've been a part of our fellowship or you're a member, you know that we typically observe and interpret the text with a little application, but we save the application for the end. Uh, And today we're going to do what Paul does. Paul, in verses 11 through 14, applies what he's been saying. And so we're going to do that as well. So what we know, verses 1 through 10, and what we must do, application, uh, because Paul does that in verses 11 through 14. So look with me at verse 1, and what we know, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Let's call out as a church those next three words. Very good. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, so the obvious question is, well, if, if grace abounds when I sin, so shouldn't I just turn the volume up on my sin so I can experience more of God's grace? Like after salvation, should the believer's relationship with sin increase so that our relationship with grace increases? Well, many people believe that, and it's a false teaching known as antinomianism. If you're taking note, I want you to know this theological term. Anti, of course, means against And nomos means law. And so the antinomian is against or opposed to God's law, meaning he or she condones a loose view where you just go out and sin, you practice lawlessness, and you just kind of uh, go against the law of God, the, the truth of Scripture. Now listen, that belief and that practice is foreign to Paul, and it's foreign to the Scriptures. And it should be foreign to our thinking. We should not, as Christians, be antinomian. Listen, God's grace does give us liberty, but not license. Amen? God's grace produces protection, but it should not produce presumption. God's grace does much more abound where sin does abound. But listen, seeking more of God's grace by sinning, is, it makes about as much sense as driving up to Atlanta, to the CDC, and then going in and saying, can I have access to your most dangerous viruses, most deadly viruses? And they say, well, why would you want access to that? And you go, because I want to be more healthy. And as long as I'm exposed to more deadly viruses, the more healthy I will become. You see, Spurgeon said it this way, it is a precious doctrine that the saints are safe, but it's a damnable inference from it that therefore they may live as they like. It is a glorious truth that God will keep his people but it is an abominable falsehood that sin will do them no harm. So what is our relationship now in Christ with sin? If we were in Adam and now we're in Christ, does Adam have any influence over us? 
Does this body of sin, does this influence of sin have any influence? Well, Paul answers his own rhetorical question in the antinomian line of thinking in verse 2. You just yelled it out enthusiastically. Got to say first service is a little more enthusiastic with that, but Paul answers his own rhetorical question in some of the strongest language that he uses in all of the New Testament, let alone Romans. His response in verse 2 is by no means with an exclamation point, but here's how some other Bible translations and paraphrases put this. The New Living uh, says, of course not. The King James says, God forbid, or perish the thought. Certainly not. Far be the thought. May such a thing never occur. Another translation says, impossible, absurd, nonsense. God forbid that we should ever begin to think like that. And the Phillips translation, uh, we don't use this phrase often, but what a ghastly thought. How ghastly. (laughs) Maybe we would say today, no way, Jose. Like, we haven't been freed from sin to sin. That's absurd. No, the believer's relationship with sin is now broken. And we no longer identify with sin. Why? Because now I identify with Christ in a new and greater way. So what I had in Christ has replaced what I had in Adam. And notice that that's Paul's second question here in verse 2. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And the word live there doesn't mean in the occasional sinful moment, but to live in, a, in the way First John speaks about sinning, going on sinning like in a deliberate, consistent, unrepentant way where it marks your life. Uh, we can't still live in it. The, the implied answer is we can't. And with this question, Paul is now identifying or establishing this strong idea that, listen, Christ died for sin, but Christians have likewise died to sin. The great Puritan uh, writer John Owen used to say, a pastor only has two problems. I, I disagree. There's a lot more than two. But he said, a pastor primarily has two problems. Number one, you have to persuade unbelievers that you are under the dominion of sin. That's tough today. You are under the dominion of sin if you're an unbeliever. If you're not walking in repentance and faith, you are under the dominion of sin. But secondly... Uh, it's also another problem is persuading believers that they are no longer under the dominion of sin. Uh, And that is a challenge. So notice with me verse 3, his third question. Most notably, the first four words of his question, verse 3, do you not know? He began asking, like, what shall we say then? Uh, And he's going to continue this idea of asking, do you not know? Like, we know this. Are you ignorant to this? Didn't you know this? Didn't we know what? Well, verse 3, that all of us, all Christians who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. And then he goes on to say we were, of course, buried with him, and then we were raised with him. And he says, by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. Now, just I want to make sure we understand this concept of baptism for a minute, because baptism is misunderstood often. He's saying, don't you know that when you were baptized into Christ Jesus, we, in that moment, you were joined with him in a few things. Now, Paul uses the idea of baptism here. You want to circle that word uh, when he says we've been baptized into Christ Jesus. He's using that word. What comes to your mind and my mind when we hear baptism is we immediately think someone went underwater. Uh, and I'll just, I'll just kind of add that, you know, it's baptism in water by immersion. I'll just add that little extra just to be fun. If you disagree, you can talk to me later and I'll prove why you're wrong biblically, but it's fine. Um, Just kidding. There's nervous laughter on that one. Um, (laughs) Ultimately, 
this idea of baptism, uh, I don't want you to get hung up on the idea of sprinkle or dunk when you're thinking in relationship of what we do publicly to kind of confirm or affirm what Christ has done and how we're identifying with him. That's the act that we do publicly. But I want you to think in bigger terms, broader terms, technical terms. Okay, let's zoom out from the water aspect of baptism to the concept. Let's think about this for a minute. Baptism for the Christian means to receive the indwelling Holy Spirit, to be sealed with the Spirit, as well as to identify with Christ in his, bat, in his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. It's, it's, it's an identifier. So Paul says this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, and notably, he actually says, I don't want you to be ignorant. So notice verse 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Do we have that, Chris? I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, that's Israel, they were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. They were all, here's that word, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Well, what's that? He says, for that, uh, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So according to Paul, to be baptized into Moses that's kind of strange, right? What does he mean by that? Well, what he means is to identify with him, to join with Moses in such a way that Moses' action, Moses' activity is synonymous with the people's. So what did Moses do? Moses put his staff in the Red Sea. He walked through it safe and dry. He struck the rock, which provided water. Later, he speaks to the rock, and it provides water. He followed the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day through the wilderness. But because Israel, as a people in the Red Sea, were baptized into him, then every activity that he uh, went through, ultimately, they experienced. What he experienced, they experienced because they were now baptized or identified with him. And that's the idea Paul's getting at. So we don't sin more to get more grace. Why? Because our relationship to sin has been broken. We're no longer in Adam, we're in Christ. So just follow me. We're joined with Jesus in his death. We're joined with Jesus, verse 4, in his burial. And we're joined with Jesus, verse 5, in his resurrection. When you were baptized in water or sprinkled, well, obviously you know where I stand. When you were baptized in the name of Jesus, this is a public confirmation of what was already true in you in your initial conversion. You had received the indwelling Holy Spirit. You were uh, you were sealed, and now you're identified with Christ, united with him fully and forever. And so Paul says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, we too might walk in newness of life. Uh, and so Jesus' victory was complete, and his resurrected body was now alive and new. Now notice the next few verses, verse 6. Notice the two words he starts with in verse 6. He says, we know. Earlier he said, don't you know? We know. We know a few things. First, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And we'll really dive into that next week as we talk about slavery. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, if that's true, then the end result is also true. We believe that we will also live with him. Now, notice what else we know. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin 
once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, some of you have this verse written down somewhere in your house or on your body. Galatians 2.20 is a great verse. And Paul in Galatians 2.20 tells the church in Galatia, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I'm now living, I live by faith in the Son of God. You guys know the verse. Uh, So what he's saying there is, I wasn't literally there on the hill of Calvary. I wasn't literally there. Uh, in around 33 AD. I wasn't actually there. But when I received Christ, repented of my sin, trusted Christ, then ultimately I was there. I had been crucified with him. So sin's power was put to an end when you and I were baptized into, united with, joined with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Let me put it this way. When you repented of your treasonous, lawless rebellion against a holy, or I should say the holy, perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful creator God. When you put your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, for the remission of all your sin, you were now cut off from sin's power like a body is cut off when it dies from life and breath. No matter how much you can do to like prop the body up and carry the body with you and try to keep the body going, it is dead. It has been cut off from breath and life. Now, when the Holy Spirit indwelt you as a new creation, you were brought from death to life just as Christ's resurrected body was reanimated, so to speak, and did not remain a looming corpse. So that means, listen, all the guilt, all the fear, all the threat, all the power of death was silenced like a muzzled attack dog. And that's not even the best analogy because someone say, well, just remove the muzzle and it'll still get you. No, The the better analogy is because our union with Christ did so much more than that, sin and death were more than just rendered powerless. Uh, The idea, as he'll get into next week, is that they formerly were like enslaving us, but now we have died to that whole system of slavery and we've been set free. There's no more dominion over us, any more than death has dominion over Christ. We'd say, well, he no longer has to fear that final enemy. He's risen again. Maybe you've had a loved one who was on the verge of death and you've been worried about them and you've been praying for them and I'm just not sure. But then they overcome that sickness. They get out of the hospital. They recover. They have the antibodies and everything's great. You're no longer sitting there cowering in fear. I'm just hoping they'll they'll pull through. No, they've made it. Uh, Not even the best uh, analogy because we eventually do die. But verse six says that our old self was crucified with him in order that this body of sin might be brought to nothing. Listen, Christian, That is the sum total influence that sin has over you now. Like the riddle we opened with. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, in the Christian's life, sin and death have been reduced to nothing. Isn't that encouraging? Now the question is, well, then why do I still sin? Wouldn't it be great if we were just sinless? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, And so what I want to emphasize here just for a moment is that Paul says this is what we know. Again, he's asking, didn't you know? Do you not know? What we know. We know our old self was crucified. We know Christ's resurrection is the final death blow to death itself. We know, we know, we know. What we know, Christian, is of not little significance. What we know affects how we live. What we know reminds us, oh yeah, that's who I am. This is who I am and this is whose I am. What we know can be the difference, listen, between the, like, Enduring the Christian life 
or enjoying the Christian life. It's what we know. And we need to take heed to what we know. Uh, I love Alistair, Pastor Alistair Begg. Uh, his influence on my life with expository preaching has been significant. Uh, and he recently, in the last few years, spoke, I think at a conference, about what, the importance of what we know. And though here in our, our Sunday morning gathering, we don't pretty much ever play um, like video clips, let alone sermon video clips, this is such an impacting uh, way that he communicates this, and he does it so much better than I could, but this is too good not to convey. So I want to show you this clip of Alistair Begg speaking about what we know. It's about four minutes long, and a lot of it has to do with corporate worship, but it's so important what we know. So let's watch this together. Verse 1 of chapter 5, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. We know, we know. The Christian faith engages our minds. This is something that we have to keep reminding ourselves of so that we don't allow our minds to fossilize and that we continue to be sharpened and to make progress. I was at a church in California just a few weeks ago now, back in August, I think it was, time flies. And I went there, I had a Sunday free, and I was staying with friends, and I went down to the church, and I was excited because I get to go now, and I don't have to do anything at all except do whatever they tell me to do. And so I sat there, and I waited for it to begin. And it was quite fascinating, actually. They had big screens, and they had a clock on the screens, and when I got in, it said five minutes, and I'd only been in about two seconds, and you won't be surprised, it said four minutes and 58 seconds. And uh, then it counted down, and eventually when it counted down, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, and just right on the moment of time, the band began, and, and I was waiting for David Letterman at that point. Anybody, I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know what was going to happen next. And then, and then eventually the band did what it did, and then the, the person who was to lead the, the praise, his opening gambit, was this. Hey, how do y'all feel this morning? Well, that was enough for me. I was ready. I, we could have had the benediction right there. That was so good. <laughs> I thought, what kind of New Testament question is that? How do you all feel this morning? If I told you how I feel, especially in light of the last five minutes, you would question my, whether I was even a Christian at all. So don't ask me that question. Ask me what I know. Ask me what I know. Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about His Word. Ask me what I know to be a verity that can deal with my soul. That's what I need. Don't make me sing songs about how I feel. Don't. The silly, repetitive songs again and again. I just want to praise you. Lift my hands and say I love you. You are everything to me. Goodness, at half past eight on a Sunday morning, I'm barely ambulatory. I can't start there. And you want me to say that? I just kicked the dog, and I don't even have a dog. I, I, I got argued with someone because they took my parking space. I never had spilled my coffee. I didn't read my Bible. I'm a miserable wretch. And now you want me to start here. How do you feel? I feel rotten. That's how I feel. What do you got for me? The answer, nothing. I got nothing for you. That's why you have to get yourself under the control of the Scriptures. That's why it is what we know 
the verities of the Scriptures, which then fuel our hearts and our emotions and lead us on. Hence, praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like thee his praise should sing? Okay, now we've got something to sing about. For we've been reminded of truth. You've been ransomed. You've been healed. You've been restored. You've been forgiven. You're looking away from yourself. Now you're looking out unto Christ. And it is in this that we have something that fuels our praise. Powerful. See, what we know influences what we do. And that's really where Paul goes in this next section to apply this text. So let's look at this next section, what we must do. And we're going to look at three kind of main application points from this. So notice verse 11. The pivot word here is so. So in light of that, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And here's another one, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So three points I want to make to apply this that Paul uses Uh, Number one, we're not going to have them on the screen, but jot these down. Number one, Paul tells us, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Okay, now I want you to circle the word consider here in uh, your Bibles in verse 11. Uh, This this word that we use in the English uh, vernacular, English verb consider, it's weak, it's soft. So when we say, hey, consider, what we're saying is like, hey, you should consider, maybe say to your, your son, hey, you should consider going to college one day, kiddo. And, and so your eight-year-old kid's like, thanks, dad, I'll consider that. Can I go play with my Legos now? You know, it's just not a, it's not a, a punchy, powerful word. Uh, you might say like, hey, have you considered new car insurance? 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Thanks, I'll consider it. Like, it's, it's just not a, it's not a true thing. Geico did pay me to uh, throw that in here. But this word consider has been reduced in meaning from the Greek to the English. Um, But here's a couple different ways of translating it. You could translate it reckon, uh, which we don't use often, regard, look upon, or I like this, count. Uh, In other words, in relationship to sin, count yourself or mark yourself, remind yourself, regard yourself, reckon yourself, consider that you're dead. And in relationship with God, count yourself, mark yourself, regard yourself as alive. One person said it this way, through our union with him, we are freed from our sinful passions and permanently oriented toward righteousness. This does not mean that we will never sin, but it does mean that the Christian's true heart, no matter how great the struggle and the now not yet, will always be toward God and righteousness. So here's the reality, church. Are we still sinners? Yeah, we are. Sin still has a pervasive and luring influence in the life of each and every believer. And you, I've said this before, would that at our day of conversion, justification and sanctification went together. 
immediately. That we're just immediately sanctified and we never sinned anymore. And then boom, we're glorified. I would love that. But the reality is we still sin. And we do sin, but we don't have to sin. When we do sin, we have an advocate that we can call upon. And though every believer sins, there is one more thing that every believer does with their sin, and that's that they have the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they repent. Even though we sin, we acknowledge our sin. We grieve over our sin. The Spirit reminds us of our weakness and allows us to come to a place where we want to mortify it, which just means to put it to death. And then we as a Christian seek to pursue righteousness in the way of Jesus. So if you're a Christian today, you should be marked. Yeah, you're marked by sin, but you're marked by repentance. And that's really Paul's maybe second application point, if you're taking note. Number two, Paul says, do not let sin reign in your body. There's a couple do nots here. And he says here, don't let sin have control, reigning like a king in your life, in your body. Now, our body, our physical body, corrupted as it is because of original sin, your body is still neutral. Uh, and so, though our body parts are neutral, they can be presented thus, thus as instruments for unrighteousness or instruments for righteousness. So just think about this for a minute. The members of your body. I don't want you to call it out today, but just think of ways that you've sinned this morning or this week. Just think of the, the places you went sinfully. So it may have been with your eyes, the things you look at and lust after. It may have been the things you've meditated on with your mind that you mold over or, or been anxious about. Maybe something you consumed with your, you, with your nostrils, with your mouth. Maybe the places you tread with your feet, the things you took into your hands, you know, using the mouse to click on certain things. Maybe the affections you set your heart upon. And before Christ, you were bound in your sin to lust with the flesh, lust with the eyes, to seek out the pride of life. You were bound to fulfill your pleasures. You had to, no matter how selfish or twisted they were, and you twisted the justification of them. But see, now in Christ, we take those same neutral body members, and instead of offering them to sin, we now present them to God. We use our actual body, our time, our talents, our treasure, our physical members as well. We use that for God's glory and to advance the gospel. And that's really the, the third and final application point that Paul gives us, and that is that he just simply says, present yourselves fully to God. Present yourselves. Because sin no longer has dominion over you and I, because we're no longer under law but under grace, and we'll get into that in chapter 7 especially, because that's true, we can now present ourselves fully to God. Isn't that a joy? That, that you can use your body, your life for the glory of God, even if you're here today and some of you are very frail, very broken. You see the corruption of sin and your body is maybe at its, at its end you can still be used for God's glory. You can still present yourself physically, spiritually to the Lord. So what does, what does that mean? That means before Christ, you may have used your intellect to, you know, attempt to disprove God's existence. Good luck. But now in Christ, I use my intellect to grow theologically, to study his word, to study uh, doctrine. And so we don't use our head, hands, and heart to no longer orient us towards temptation, sin, or judgment, but we offer all that we are to God to be used for his glory. We're no longer under law. We're in and under the grace of God. You and I have received a status change. What glorious truth this is. And so we're not going to put it on the screen, but as we, as we um, 
close this time of our service and prepare our hearts for communion, uh, we're gonna, I'm just going to read a quote from John Stott that speaks about this status change. And in just a moment, we're going to pray together. And uh, during our time of prayer, um, we're going to begin with a, a kind of a moment of silence. And I want to offer that time of silence uh, as a means of a moment of confession. You don't need to call it out loud, but I want to just give us a, a little bit of space for us to reflect on our sin and to confess our sin. And we'll close that time with prayer and because of the scriptures, because of the finished work of Christ, I want to offer an assurance of pardon that we are forgiven in Christ because of his finished work. Uh, so listen to this quote from John Stott about status change, how glorious this is. He says this, Can a married woman live as though she were still single? Well, yes, I suppose she could. It's not impossible. But let her remember who she is. Let her feel her wedding ring, the symbol of her new life, of union with her husband, and she'll want to live accordingly. Regenerate Christians should no more contemplate a return to unregenerate living than adults to their childhood, married people to their singleness, or discharged prisoners to their prison cell. For our union with Jesus Christ has severed us from the old life and committed us to the new. Our baptism stands between the two like a door between two rooms, closing on the one, opening into the other. We have died and we have risen, how can we possibly live again in what we've died to? Amen? And so we're going to pray together, and uh, we're going to just ask the Lord for forgiveness. We're going to have a time of confession. So bow your heads with me uh, this morning as we present ourselves fully to God. And remember, we are now dead to sin, but we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's just have a moment of reflection and confession. Lord, this morning we could have that moment of silence extend ad infinitum because we acknowledge this morning our not only proclivity to sin, our, how easy it is for us to fall into temptation, uh, but Lord, we also acknowledge the weight and the gravity uh, that we're committing lawless treason against the creator. And so, Lord, we want to ask this morning as we confess our sins, we want to ask for forgiveness. We have sought to atone. We've sought to atone for our sins by our works, by justifying it, by ignoring it, excusing it, renaming it, seeking to find a, a crowd that supports it. But, Lord, this morning we acknowledge that nothing can atone for our sin except for the finished work of Christ at Calvary, that Jesus took our place. He is the propitiation. He was slaughtered for our sins and rose again for our redemption. So this morning, we ask, Lord, for forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, for what we have in Christ. We thank you that our relationship to sin has been broken, and we now have union with the Son of God. What joyful truth that is to understand this morning, to study, to meditate on, maybe throughout the week to just recount the fact that we are in him. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, now as we orient our hearts towards the gospel, towards the cross, we acknowledge what you suffered and did in our place. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. 
We receive your forgiveness this morning. And we love you. We're so grateful, Lord, for the work of Christ on our behalf. And so, Lord, we pray now as we reflect on it that you would bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, the scripture tells us that you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, remember that? He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So because the scriptures are true, because of Christ's finished work, I can declare to you today that your sins are forgiven through Christ. And so I offer you that assurance of pardon because of the finished work of Christ and the truth of scripture. So let's sing together. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.